Welcome to the 434th episode of COVID Calls, a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Jacob Steer-Williams. I'm a historian of public health at the College of Charleston in South Carolina, and I've been absolutely thrilled to be hosting the program this week. It's been such a pleasure to be on COVID Calls every day and to speak with so many experts in the last few days. And to be completely transparent, like most of you, I've been feeling really run down this week from the onslaught of COVID-19 fatalism and the removal of most restrictions and precautions for COVID-19. It's as if so many people are just giving up. And on top of that, to add another disaster of the terrifying news of the senseless violence and the anti-humanitarian and the anti-democratic Russian invasion of Ukraine. But the folks I've, we, I've spoken with this week have really been an inspiration, and, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm looking for one more today. Um, this week has been really a shot in the arm for me to keep pushing on, and hopefully for the listeners for, of COVID calls as well. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID calls Monday through Friday, usually with the regular host, uh, Scott Knowles, though I warned Scott earlier today um, in, in a message that I'll be back for another week soon. So more to come on that. To find the program, go to COVID Calls YouTube TV channel. You can also hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as a podcast on Spotify, on iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere else you get podcasts. You can keep up with us. We're active on Twitter uh, using the handle at COVID Calls, me at Steer Williams, or Scott at US of Disaster. Please help us spread the word. There's still a lot more to talk about with COVID as the pandemic unfolds and we merge and entangle uh, multiple disasters on top of a pandemic disaster. Uh, feel free to reach out for ideas for future topics and guests to either myself or Scott. As of today, Friday, February 25th, 2022, there have been 5,933,347 reported deaths from COVID-19 worldwide, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. So I've been guest hosting COVID calls all week. And to put the ongoing COVID deaths into perspective, just think about this, what I believe to be a shocking statistic. And anyone that knows me and my work knows that I, I try to push back on statistics in favor of narrative and ethnography and human stories. But just like think about this statistic. So I started hosting COVID calls on Monday this week. And from Monday until today, there have been 44,000 292 people that have died of COVID-19 worldwide. The COVID death rate in the U.S., um, just to take one example, continues to rise. We get closer every day to 1 million Americans who have died of COVID-19, and our daily death, co daily death counts are, are hovering between 2,000 and 3,000 people per day, even as so many people start calling the pandemic over. But of course, these numbers are just they don't humanize the pandemic. Um, in other words, the people that die are, are, are our relatives, our parents, our partners, our children, our coworkers, and our neighbors. And as a way to bring humanity and to humanize the numbers, each day this week, I've been reading a story just like Scott does um, in the past 400 episodes of a real story of, of someone who's been lost or someone who's been an advocate. And our story today comes from uh, journalist Eric Larson and Ken Serrano of the Asbury Park Press from uh, two days ago, Wednesday, February 23rd, 2022. And the title of that piece was Ocean County Sheriff's Officer 
40 dies of complications of COVID-19. The Ocean County Sheriff's Department is struggling to cope with the loss of its second officer in just more than a week. Sergeant Matthew Horton, 40, of Berkeley, died from complications of COVID-19 while hospitalized on Tuesday. He was the first commander of the department's rapid deployment team and served in its judicial, field services, and professional standards units, the sheriff's office announced Wednesday. Horton leaves behind a wife and four sons. A Marine Corps vet, Horton joined the sheriff's department in 2007 and graduated from the Ocean County Police Academy in Lakewood the following year. Sergeant Horton was a true gentleman and a man of God, the department said in a statement Wednesday afternoon. Horton was one of five sheriff's officers who saved the life of Judicial Secretary Bonnie Muir Milligan when she collapsed at work on October 16, 2015. Milligan was blue, her heart had stopped, and she wasn't breathing. Horton used the defibrillator to revive her, according to a press story. Sheriff Michael Mastronardi said he had been informed on Friday night that Horton's condition was deteriorating and his doctors did not expect him to survive. The news came as the sheriff and his officers were at the viewing for Sheriff's Officer Brian Stockhorf, 41, who died in a car crash on February 14th. Stockhorf and Horton had graduated from the same academy class in 2018, the sheriff noted. We're getting through it, Mastronardi answered when asked how his department was managing such a loss. Mastronardi said the passing of the two men is a reminder to him of how fortunate he is to serve with such an outstanding department of officers and staff who serve and protect the people of Ocean County each and every day. Sergeant Peter Glass, president of the Ocean County Sheriff's Superior Officers Association, Local 379A, said funeral arrangements for Horton would be announced in the coming days. Counselors have been available to anyone in the department who wishes to talk, the sheriff said. Director Jack Kelly of the County Board of Commissioners acknowledged Horton's death at an agenda meeting of the commission on Wednesday evening. COVID is being defeated little by little, and that is a good thing to see, Kelly said, although we just lost a sheriff's officer from COVID, so it's not completely over. My uh, my partner is uh, about to celebrate a 40th birthday this weekend, which I'm very excited about doing. Um, but reading that reading that obituary um, really puts uh, puts celebrating in the perspective of grief as well. So I want to bring in my guests today. Uh, I'm super excited for for this call. Let me introduce them. Matt Davidson is a PhD candidate in history at the University of Miami. His work focuses on the U.S. empire and public health in the Caribbean during the early 20th century. His dissertation, Health Under Occupation, Haitian Encounters with U.S. Imperial Medicine, 1915 to 1934, examines how Haitians experienced and navigated the 1915 to 34 U.S. occupation and its associated health interventions. Matt is completing his dissertation with the support of an AMS History of Medicine Fellowship. Matt, how are you today? My next guest is Kristen Brigg-Ortiz, who's a PhD candidate in the history of medicine at Johns Hopkins University, where she focuses on the intersection of public health and the environment in 19th century colonial South Africa. Her dissertation examines how municipal officials and residents in three of South Africa's major port cities imagined and implemented water supply and management strategies and infrastructures. Her research has been funded by the U.S. Fulbright Program and the National Science Foundation. Hey, Kristen. Hey. Alex, 
Alexander Perry is a fifth year PhD candidate with the Institute of the History of Medicine at Johns Hopkins, writing his dissertation on home accidents and the US product safety from 1920 to 1980. His research has received funding from the Consortium for the History of Science, Technology and Medicine, the National Science Foundation, the Linda Hall Library, and Johns Hopkins Center for Injury Research and Policy. Alex has published on public health and the American home with the Journal of the History of Biology, the Washington Post, and Lady Science. Hey, Alex. My last guest is Madeline Ware, who's a third-year PhD student in the history of science and medicine at Yale University. She has published on understudied histories of illegal abortions in her home state of South Carolina and remains committed to reproductive justice in her scholarship. Her dissertation traces racialized histories of body positivity and wellness culture through 19th century technologies of fitness, exercise, and sexual arousal that circulated across the British Empire. It's so good to see you, Maddie. So as we like to do on COVID calls to get things rolling with our discussion, let's start with where you're calling from and what the pandemic situation is there. Kristen, you want to get us rolling? Sure. So I'm currently in London, England, um, and where I'm doing um, dissertation research at the UK National Archives and the British Library. And um, so Prime Minister Boris Johnson actually just lifted all COVID regulations about three days ago. Um, and But I can tell you that it's been the adherence to regulations has, here has been dropping steadily over the past two months since I've been here. Um, I mean, I think that there's probably been um, probably a 70% reduction in like face mask wearing on London transport, even though we're actually still required to do that. Um, so, and the numbers are falling. So not quite as bad as the US, but um, I mean, we still need to take precautions um, and it, it's just recommendations now. Yeah. What's it been like? So have you been um, at the National Archives at Kew or where you been where you been recently in the archives and what was the situation there? Um, so I've yeah, I've been at Kew and um, and again, the British Library up at King's Cross Station. And honestly, they're both open, um, fully open, um, fully functional. Um, reading rooms are open to, um, you know, there doesn't seem to be a restriction on capacity. Um, so I know the Welcome Library, which I haven't had to use um, on this visit, open just opened, reopened at the end of January. But um, apart from that, things are pretty much, they feel very normal. It's a bit eerie, I have to say. So do you have to make pre-appointments um, or are things back to pre-pandemic um, archival research? It's pre-pandemic. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Matt, tell us where you're calling from. Uh, so I'm actually based in Ottawa, uh, Canada, uh, right now. Uh, so things uh, here, um, as I'm sure many of you know, uh, there was that big uh, uh, so-called trucker convoy uh, protest, the anti-vaccine uh, mandate uh, protest that had basically occupied the city uh, for three weeks. It got finally cleared out uh, last weekend um, after uh, the Canadian government uh, enacted uh, an emergency declaration, basically the what replaced the War Measures uh, Act. Um, so a very high level emergency declaration. And so people here in the city are definitely very happy to see that far right occupation uh, cleared out, feeling more 
safe in this city again uh, because of that. Uh, although certainly lots of concerns about how the Ottawa police basically allowed this to take place. Uh, for any of us who have been in any other protest, <laughs> we know the type of violence that uh, you can face um, from from police and uh, these people are basically just allowed to occupy uh, the city. Uh, so that's kind of the, the big thing. Um, but in terms of the actual uh, disease uh, situation, uh, numbers are certainly down from what they were uh, at the top of the Omicron peak, uh, down to the point now where the vaccine mandates have basically all been lifted in this province. Uh, the mask requirements are, are still uh, in place for now, but it's not entirely clear uh, how much longer uh, that's going to be. Yeah, it seems, um, <clears throat> it seems like there's some real fodder to study. And I hate to say that because like, I hate to reduce a disaster in real time to something that we just study. But uh, apart from like being activists, which I know like all of you are on, on, on Twitter and in other forums and publications, um, y'all are doing this work too. Um, but it seems like we have a real reckoning to come with, but with how fast we're deregulating COVID, COVID policies right now. Um, particularly when we just, you know, I, as I think all of you know, like, uh, my interest is in the history of epidemiology and I follow so much epidemiology, particularly of COVID. Like every day I'm opening up a epidemiological study or a model trying to, you know, understand this or talking to an epidemiologist as I did yesterday on COVID calls. And there's just, there's just very little real evidence to suggest that what we're doing right now is the right thing to do um, from a, from an epidemiological standpoint. So even places um, like many part provinces in Canada that I, that I think like, the rest of the world has been looking to and saying like, wow, here's a model of how to do things fairly effectively. Um, we're quickly slipping into a moment where I think like that's becoming an untenable position. So thanks for sharing that. Maddie, what about you? Yeah, um, I am currently in New Haven, Connecticut. Um, in Connecticut and the city of New Haven, um, numbers of infections and hospitalizations from the Omicron surge are um, relatively low, and they are still decreasing. Um, so Governor Lamont has um, announced that the statewide mask mandate in public schools will end on Monday. Um, but the city of New Haven itself um, decided that we will keep uh, the mandate in place. Um, we also still have a citywide mask mandate for all um, indoor public spaces. Um, at Yale, it's it's a bit of a different story. I mean, we definitely have a mask mandate um, still in place and vaccine uh, and booster mandates and testing requirements. Um, but the infection rates are at an all-time high within the university. Um, we I think last week we had like 360 positive tests at the university. Um, this is mostly, I think, undergrad students, um, but also... You know, there's still uh, faculty and grad students who are testing positive. We are having in-person classes. Um, on a personal note, I am teaching right now. And I usually have about, um, you know, anywhere from like four to five of my 30 students missing each week because of a positive test or a close contact or they're just scared to come to class sometimes. So, yeah. Yeah, that's so interesting. Um yeah. So on to give you a, a flip side of that, because the, the numbers are so interesting. So like I hear you say like 320, you know, 20, 23 positive cases on campus. And I'm like, 
that um, that's a really high number, of course, and that's a really serious number that warrants real um, real attention from from in this case university or local authorities, and 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 y'all are doing routine surveillance testing, right? So I think about like the opposite situation, which is on my um, university campus where we're doing no surveillance testing. There's no vaccine mandate um, starting on Monday. We're having this really interest, what I find to be interesting and scary new policy where. Uh, students have to wear masks in classrooms, but they don't have to wear masks in hallways or any other parts of buildings, which like that is really striking to me from an epidemiological perspective, because I haven't seen any epidemiologist who says that like COVID won't spread in a hallway where students gather, but it will spread in a classroom. I know, it's very interesting to me. Um, but, but our numbers this week, they come out every Wednesday. And they said um, our official statistics were that seven people, students, faculty, staff, are COVID positive, which, of course, that's ludicrous because there aren't only seven people that are COVID positive. I had two students out of uh, 11 in a senior capstone class that told me privately that they're um, COVID positive. Um, and and that's a pretty high high number, two out of 11, right? Um, so, so I, my point to this is like, the statistics are so interesting. I spoke with um, with with Freya Jepkot at Cambridge and, and David Stetson, who's in Sweden. They're both epidemiologists yesterday. And we talked so much um, for the entire hour, basically, about how during the last two years, epidemiological statistics about the pandemic have just been wielded as political weapons. And, and, and that's about all we can say about the statistics. And for those of you on this call, for all of us that study the history of medicine and public health, that is not surprising um, that's how statistics, particularly epidemic statistics, have always been political tools. But at the same time, like uh, I, what I what I said yesterday in, in like total seriousness was like, I think maybe like people like me have then failed. Like we failed to equip everyday people with teaching them about the 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 cultural way and the political way in which statistics are used. Um, so I think like it's, there's been like a real reckoning from, 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 from myself, um, and hopefully for our field with, with how, with what kind of work we do and what kind of like, especially this week, you know, I started this week talking about the death of Paul, Paul Farmer and, and the kind of like activist work that he spent his whole career doing. And like, I think, I, I really truly think that, that our field needs a real reckoning right now moving forward. So, um, Alex, you want to jump in? Uh, yeah, sure. So um, I'm calling in from Baltimore, uh, and actually, contra Kristen's point, uh, part of the reason I'm back in Baltimore is I was supposed to be doing research for the last month and a half at NARA, which is still closed uh, with no timeline to reopen because of high case rates in Prince George's County. Um, so I think, uh, as, as we may talk about later, uh, a lot of us are still feeling the effects, not just interpersonally and in terms of our own health and the well-being of the people around us, but also in terms of our ability to actually do the research that we're supposed to be doing uh, at this point in our lives. Um, in terms of Baltimore specifically, um, it was actually just announced that uh, the, the mayor has uh, indicated that all mask mandates, except for the mask mandate in public schools, which will stand, uh, is going to be repealed starting next week. Um, so um, case rates are low. Uh, they're not particularly high here, but I think to other points that folks have already made, um, it's a dangerous game to treat a small temporary decrease in cases as a lasting trend that you then make large public policy decisions about. Um, so um, I think I, like many other people, am 
concerned uh, about the mask mandate being removed, um, and we'll see what happens. Yeah, thanks, Alex. And I, and I really appreciate all of you telling us where you're coming from because, but it it really does underscore you know something that that I think this very simple exercise in COVID in, in COVID calls of just bringing on guests and asking them where they are and what their situation is like right now. Um, so we got this is the 434th time that we've done that. And it, and it really does provide this like really important window into how we experience pandemics in such varied ways. So today is, is such an important episode of COVID Calls, and it's someone that I've been wanting to put together and organize for a long time. From the outset of the pandemic, everyday people have turned to historians of medicine and public health for answers in some ways, not necessarily clinical or epidemiological answers about the pandemic, although that happens to me all the time still, and, and I suspect that it's happened to some of you as well. But more importantly, I think that the broader public has looked to history and the history of medicine and public health for meaning making, for making sense of the disaster of a pandemic from a historical perspective. And there's been a lot of historians of medicine and public health who've, who've taken on what, what I know to be the additional stress and anxiety and labor of public facing work, um, because I've been trying to do as much of it as I can possibly handle. Um, but at the same time, I think we need to recognize, and I'll be super honest here, I've been thinking about this a lot um, with all the public facing work that I've been doing, including COVID calls, that structures of race and gender and position and privilege all play into whose voices we've been hearing from for the last two years and whose voices are getting amplified. And apart from what I see every day, which are really vibrant discussions on public spaces like Twitter and on like history of medicine and public health and science blogs, where all of you have actually been active. So thank you so much. I do feel like as a profession, we've missed amplifying the voices of PhD students and PhD candidates. So this um, this call today is such an important, um, certainly not the end of this conversation, hopefully the beginning of conversations that I know all of you are having in your everyday lives and with your cohorts and with your peers and with your colleagues. So um, I'm, I'm really happy to use this platform to try to talk through um, what, it, what it's been like to be in graduate school during a public health crisis, um, one, but also to deal with the epistemic reality that you're not just like other grad students right now, you're grad students who, who study this um, and who are experts on it as well. And there's a, there's a meta level to that that I think there's a lot to talk about. So I want to start with, you know, the format for today um, that I want to do is I've got some questions. They're, they're pretty broad. And, and I just want to give you all some space to be able to talk through them and for us to talk collectively in, in directions that you want to go. But I want to start with what I think is probably the most important question of our conversation today, um, at least to jump off and one that I think absolutely has to be front and center to this conversation, which is how has the pandemic impacted your graduate school training? And I know that's a big and broad question and you're not going to be able to cover all of it. Um, but let's just maybe just give us a couple personal examples. How has it impacted your, and these are the things that I've been thinking about how it's in, been impacting um, graduate students in, this, in our field, um, networking, cancellation of conferences, um, the move to virtual conferences, which is not the same kind of networking, uh, the closing of archives, or or the difficulty of getting at archives, as Alex suggested, um, the impact of the pandemic on your writing. So there's there's and, and there's so much else to talk about here, but but I want to hear hear from you to see 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 you know what you've been experiencing, Kristen. Let's start with you. Oh man. Okay. Uh, 
Yes. So the pandemic um, has had such an effect on my research that my prospective graduation dates have actually shifted. Um, I was slated to graduate in spring 2023, um, and now it's been moved to spring 2024, which sucks, by the way. Just, yeah. you know, <laughs> I didn't want to be in graduate school for an extra year. Um, so I went ABD in June 2020. But it didn't actually feel real until I finally started my preparations for leaving for South Africa for the first time a year later in June 2021. Um, to make it short and sweet, 90% um, of my research just about is held in international archives, which meant that I had to improvise for the year I was stuck in the U.S. And while I was able to, you know, I, I was able to brush up on a lot of, um, you know, some of the digitized sources that are out there that I could access and my, you know, historiography I needed to catch up on. Um, I lost far too much time that I could have used much more productively. Um, so, and once I actually got to South Africa, so in Durban, um, in from June through uh, December, um, South African archives had and continue to be working on limited opening schedules and then throw in level four lockdowns that periodically were happening and uh, load shutting and you get um, even more lost time in the archives. Um, and finally, let's not forget that the global north and much of the Middle East immediately shut off South Africa from most of its airports and flight paths in late November 2021 which actually forced me to leave the country 10 days early and thus lose even more research time that I will never get back. Um, you know, I mean, I'll let someone else talk, discuss networks restrictions because that's also certainly impacted me. Um, but I think it's really important for myself to emphasize the shift in, well, everything um, because of the pandemic and how it's affected the research. Yeah. Um, and especially too, like, when your research is your life, um, it, in turns, it in turn impacts everything else um, and all of the plans that you had so carefully laid out. And it's, it's yeah, so it's been, it's been an interesting road. You know, the thing that, that I've been thinking a lot about, and I, and I know that you, Kristen, and, and Alex, I know you you two have been advocates for this and have been publicly um, outspoken about it, is, you know, there, there have been um, many universities, um, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, that Hopkins is one of them, who have, who have given uh, PhD students an extra year um, and have worked out, um, is that not true? Um, so ish. So let, let's talk about that maybe. Um, but there have been universities who, who have been trying to make accommodations for, for lost time, um, particularly in terms of, of funding for, for PhD students. And, um, and yet it's been wildly uneven, of course. And two, um, as anyone who studies disasters knows, one lost year. So let's take your case, Kristen, to like have to wait one year to go to South Africa isn't just losing a year. It's actually like compounding lost time in exponential factors. And and I, I don't know how to talk about that in other, any other way than like qualitatively. Um, 
because I don't think there's any metric that we can quantify it. Um, but it seems to me that like the lost time isn't just um, a year or it's not just something like university administrators can put an easy figure on. You want to reflect on that um, before we move to somebody else? Sure. I mean, I think that's one of the struggles we've been, especially like having at Hopkins, <laughs> was getting them to pay attention to this um, and to realize that like, no, it's not just, you know, like we're not just out for a year and then we hop back in, you know, we kind of have to not only make up for that time, but also recognize that that time is going to affect everything down the line. Um, and I've, you know, and not just in terms of your research either, um, and how your research radically changes and the kinds of sources you can access, but also just your mental and emotional state of health. Um, and, you know, I know you brought up writing and like the fact that, you know, some people literally just could not write because they were so traumatized by everything that happened um, over the past two years and it's still happening. So we're going to, you know, we'll see some, it's so again, it's not just in terms of your research, it's also in terms of just your whole state of being and how that's been affected. And especially for people who have had long COVID. I mean, that's just, that's a whole other level of right. impact on your research right. and on your career, really. Yeah. And there's something else I want to talk about later in the program. So I'll, I'll just throw this out there now and, and not exp just let you think about all how to answer this question for, for later is like, I think there's something inherently diff different or compounded by, I agree with everything you just said, Kristen, and like the, 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 you know, the psychological and the mental and the stress effects of the pandemic and, and being able to write. Um, and I think that's true of like all people who, who write and spend part of their, their lives writing and thinking. Um, but it's, but it's compounded when like what you work on is our subjects, because I can tell you that, um, you know, the stuff that I've been working on for my current book largely has to do with the third plague pandemic in South Africa and India. And it has to do with really horrific colonial violence and, and the body. And, and, and it's, it's, it's so hard to read archival sources. It's hard to think about them. It's hard to write about them. It always is pre-pandemic, I mean, dealing with subjects in the history of medicine and public health that we deal with are, are inherently difficult um, to, to handle, but to, to be living through a pandemic and to see death all around us and to have family members die. I've had several family members just die of COVID in the last two years. Um, people that I know to be dealing with grief and to be dealing with structural violence and, and inequality um, and, and, and then to study it, it just, it just, it's just, it's just harder. I don't know how to um, say that in any way that um, that makes sense to anyone else, but, but I know you all feel that as well. So um, thanks for sharing that. Matt, what, what do you want to talk about here? So for myself, I, I was lucky enough that I was able to get my uh, research done prior to the pandemic uh, hitting. So I just finished all the, the archival research bouncing all over. So that was great. Now, I then threw myself into a bit of a, a unique circumstance, I guess, uh, rather than returning to Miami after the research year for some personal and family reasons, I uh, decided to come back here to Ottawa and had this great plan set up you know, fellowships, et cetera. Uh, it was going to be great. I was going to write. I was going to be at home in my community. Perfect. Uh, and then the pandemic hit, of course, which is, I mean, isolating for everyone, but 
uh, when I'm that much further away from uh, my academic community, uh, I was feeling that. Uh, but the things that really hit me was uh, right away uh, at the start when all the universities were suddenly in this big financial crunch because of pan the pandemic, particularly schools like the University of Miami that are attached to a, a big health system that were bleeding money. Uh, suddenly, uh, these promised fellowships weren't so available uh, anymore. So I had one uh, lined up uh, right away that suddenly disappeared and I had to uh, sort out, um, oh, and I was expecting, uh, my wife was expecting kids at the time too, so you know, stress, right? Um, so, so that was one of the big things that then ultimately meant that, you know, I'm scraping together, uh, other, um, you know, other work that's not academic, uh, related in order to pay some of those bills. Uh, ultimately I ended up, uh, taking a, a leave of absence, uh, as well, because, you know, I had no other choice. Uh, so that threw all the plans uh, into the air uh, for me. Uh, the other big thing was that being here in, uh, you know, away from my, my home university, I guess, uh, is library access became a real issue. For that first year, when all classes were online, great. We've got all these, uh, you know, emergency access to uh, ebooks and, and whatnot, both through my own library and, and others. Uh, but then, as soon as uh, UM went back to in class learning, they canceled all those, uh, you know, other subscriptions and whatnot, and actually scaled back on what they had uh, available digitally again because of the the financial crisis. Uh, in the meantime. The access that I had originally had pre-pandemic to the university libraries here in Ottawa suddenly got curtailed because it's only current students, current faculty, current staff, uh, not even alumni, uh, you know, have access. So, you know, I've been relying on friends of these schools to check out these books and uh, give them to me and, and whatnot. But it's, it's obviously not quite uh, the same. Um, now, again, that's a bit of a unique situation for me as a, a grad student, though I'm sure I'm not the only grad student uh, in this kind of situation. But what I think it's um, more reflective of is actually of people who are in, um, you know, already graduated who are on that uh, adjunct treadmill, bouncing between different schools, the people in, you know, the so-called ALTAC uh, type positions who, aren't necessarily affiliated with any formal university uh, or research institution, but are still trying to do their own research and their own writing, uh, whether out of hopes for that career or just out of a, a general commitment uh, themselves. So I, I know there's lots of other people, um, you know, facing that kind of situation uh, as well, even if not a grad student uh, per se. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'm really glad that you brought up, Matt, um, the way in which pandemic austerity measures by universities and in, in trying to slash budgets. And, you know, I, I certainly have seen that in my own university has so many downstream uh, effects. And, and that's certainly um, not going to go away, mind you, I think, as all of you keenly re recognize, right? Um, you know, as, as I think you look across the country and university discourse has been 
one about, you know, realigning budgetary models. I mean, that's all we hear about today are finances, finances, finances. And often the things get caught are the things that um, not only people in the humanities, but I think especially people in the humanities really depend upon. Um, so, you know, and often that's a misunderstanding of the kind of work that we do and the kind of resources that we need, the kind of time it takes to do the work that we do. Um, and and so I'm, I'm really glad that you that you spoke about that. Maddie, what do you want to add to this? Yeah. Um, well, I do want to say, like, I'm feeling all of this so much, um, even though I am coming from, I think, a much different point in my graduate training than everyone else. Um, but yeah, I can talk about networks a little bit. Um, so I was in my first year of the PhD um, when the pandemic hit. So three of my four um, semesters of coursework were online. Um, similarly, I had about um, a semester's worth of departmental colloquium, like workshops type, you know, uh, events in person. Um, so, um, you know, and that was something that I really, really looked forward to when I decided to go to grad school um, and pursue this uh, degree. So, yeah, for me, the ability to meet and, and network with people in the field was impacted. Um, but I'm really sad about the time that I lost getting to know people in my classes and like even in my own department, um, you know, especially like grad students who were in their later years and have since graduated during the pandemic. Um, you know, we're graduating right now and I really haven't seen them since that like first semester. Um, so yeah, that, I guess the other big thing for me was my qualifying exams. Um, you know, those can feel isolating anyways, right? Because you're like coming out of coursework with your cohort and other students. Um, and then you're kind of just like on your own, uh, spending months like reading and studying and preparing. Um, so you know, I think it was helpful, but also a little bit more difficult that I did most of my reading last fall. Um, you know, great because things were a little bit more open and I felt more comfortable like going and seeing people and like kind of augmenting that time that I was spending alone. Um, but also like, I guess having um, things be open more for the first time and I've already been spending all this time in my apartment and then you know, having to sit down and read more. It was like the last thing that I wanted to do last fall. Um, so yeah, um, just a couple of things um, on like socializing and mental health that have really been impacted. Um, I did pass by the way, so um, yeah, but it was supposed to be in person and of course like Omicron hit and it was virtual too, so yeah. Yeah, thanks for thanks for sharing that, Maddie. It's um, I think it's really hard. I mean, I think I haven't seen like anybody talk about this. By the way, like you spent like the majority of your PhD program so far virtually without interacting with too many people, um, and and like of course at one level we want we want to say that like that's like preventative public health. So someone you or someone close to you didn't get sick and die from this, this infectious disease. Right. Um, but the other side is like, how do we study those, those effects um, of, of what people like you have experienced? I mean, I think like that really makes me think a lot about, it makes me question the kind of research questions that I have for, for previous um, pandemics and epidemics. And 
the kind of normative questions that I think we tend to just regrind and regrind from from you know standard methodologies and standard um, ideas in our field, and you know experiencing and hearing hearing like what what y'all are saying right now, it really means that like we kind of need some new approaches to to our field um, in order to study the things that we're seeing around us that we don't know how to study, we don't know how to make sense of, um, and that means that like our field has to change. So. Um, Alex, what do you want to contribute before we jump to the next next question? Yeah, so I guess the main thing that I would want to emphasize, I think, is that uh, I think universities as a whole uh, have been substantially underestimating how much uh, the pandemic has affected our graduate careers. And that goes all the way down to people who are just now starting and all the way up to people who have already graduated, right? Uh, uh, you know, places like Hopkins have provided some limited aid to some small subset of graduate students. Uh, almost all of it is basically like one semester and sort of grant style. You have to file an application. It's not like a, a one size fits all. Everybody gets an extension and it's only for a semester. Right. Um, and in fact, due to many of the same sort of austerity politics that you mentioned earlier, um, Hopkins is basically requiring people to sign away the ability to take any more money from the university as soon as you take one of those completion fellowships. So, you know, some schools are, are doing better than others. Some schools have provided effectively blanket one-year extensions. Some schools are doing what Hopkins is doing and providing limited aid to a few students. And some, stu and some schools aren't providing any aid to anybody at all, right? Um, I think that, that across the board, the response from most universities has been inadequate. Uh, and on top of that, it's been massively inequitable and, re and replicates all of exactly the things that we always talk about in terms of graduate student funding, the ability for graduate students once they're done to get jobs. Um, all this is doing is deepening existing hierarchies and many universities and many university administrators either don't recognize that or are choosing not to. Um, so I think it's, yeah. I think it's just important to flag that like, yes, like, I can personally also testify to like the experience that I've had and sort of how much the pandemic has delayed me. So it's been about a year's worth of delays um, in terms of my overall time to degree. Um, but this is something that's shared by everybody. Uh, and I think that there's been, uh, there hasn't been enough attention to the fact that this is a universal catastrophic event for current graduate students and also for early career faculty and also for adjuncts and even for senior faculty on some level, right? Uh, and all of us are, you know, we, we've 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 often on in occasions like this criticized sort of like business as usual mindset, like we're all just going to return to normal. It's no different in the university. If anything, the pressure is is as higher higher because a lot of us are on time scales where we can't just sort of take a year uh, and just kind of like muddle through, right? We have to graduate. We have to graduate on limited funding with limited time, uh, and then afterwards we have to then enter a job market that is. Uh, how could one put it? Uh, poor. Uh, and given that, uh, yeah. there's, there's just a, sort of a, I don't know, it's a, it's something that I feel like we, we've, we all sort of like talk to each other about, but I think people need to be more aware of just writ large. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. The other thing I, I want to like jump on there um, to follow up with you, Alex, and anyone else that wants to jump in is the kind of additional stress and labor that it takes to fight. Um. And, and I know that y'all have been fighting, like I know on Twitter, like y'all been pretty active and, and, and I've just, I've read it there mostly. Um, but I know at Hopkins that the two of you have been involved with, with labor, um, rights issues with graduate students and with contracts and with funding and like, 
y'all are fighting the fight right now to get people to listen and understand who are in positions of power to, to humanize this experience and to, to help people right now. And, and it's such an uphill battle. I mean, it's one that I've been fighting every day. I've been um, just personal context. Um, and this is, this is mostly public, so I'm not sharing anything um, private here, but like I've been on our presidential COVID task force um, the last couple of years um, as the only person from the humanities, the only person that thinks in a humanity sort of way that isn't, you know, university administrators. And it's been an incredible uphill battle just to make common sense arguments about everyday real people and how we can help them, um, because so much of this is framed around economics. And and and, and I just wondered if either uh, anyone here, um, but in particular, if anybody I know that, that Kristen and Alex, you have been, you know, dealing with labor organization and the stress of that. Um, because it's, it's not stress that you prepare for. It's not stress that, uh, that you're trained to deal with. And it's on top of everything else that we've been talking about. So, um, just open up some space there if anybody wants to talk about that. I mean, I guess as a brief remark, one thing that, that, that obviously I think that graduate students have done a, done a good job. They said that we have power to be able to sort of like organize around this and to get concessions. Uh, I, Hopkins would not have provided even the, the funding that it provided us if people in student government, people affiliated with the graduate student union uh, and supportive faculty weren't sort of hammering on the doors, right? Uh, we would have gotten nothing and we would have been expected to basically just sort of deal with it ourselves. Um, and some of that is both sort of internal stuff where you're sort of advocating with one another to sort of, uh, to just kind of figure out how to even approach this issue and how to approach it with administrators. Some of it has been, has had to be by definition because universities tend to be pretty concerned with their image uh, more public facing stuff like op-eds sort of put, applying public, public pressure. Um, and I think the thing that, that has been most troubling beyond just sort of like obviously the fact that we need to do this at all um, and the fact that like it takes a lot of time, energy, you know, it's basically a second job uh, on top of the PhD. Um, the other thing that I think is sort of uh, disheartening about this whole exercise has been that uh, it's never great to feel like you have to justify to people how the pandemic has affected you uh, or to quantify it to say it's this many years it's this much research it's this publication i wasn't able to get out because i was overwhelmed uh, or overworked um, and i feel like again and again we've been asked in these contexts to basically try and put like a like put like a hard number on how much like you know on a scale of one to ten how bad was the pandemic for you yeah. And that depending on where you slot yourself and wh whether other people agree with that assessment, basically you get you, you sort of people uh, 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 they, they apportion their sympathy and their degree of, of interest in actually helping you accordingly. Right. Uh, and I think that we all just need to be able to recognize that all of us have been affected. Right. And maybe in different degrees and in different ways. Right. But always have been affected and not just affected mildly either, right? Uh, and I think that one thing that has been very frustrating uh, in conversations with, especially folks in the administration, has been that the assumption is, oh, well, you know, yeah, this was like a bump in the road. Uh, now, don't worry, though, it's over. You can keep going. And yeah. here I am, at least, uh, still unable to get into archives I need to get into to finish my dissertation, so. Yeah. Yeah, and I think you know, for 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 those of us like like on this call, and for probably most listeners to COVID calls as well, is you know studying disaster politics and studying studying 
epidemics and pandemics, we know that they're long disasters. They're not, you know, they're, they're, they're what Scott calls slow disasters. They're not, they're not episodic events. You know, we like, we like even, and I, and I, and I, and I think we do this in our teaching a lot too. We look back in the past and we say that like, well, cholera was episodic in 1831, 1832. We bounded in time and space, right? 1918, 1919 influenza. And in fact, I think like, for for we we often teach like that, but but I think in our own research we 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 don't do that. We we show the the long and the slow, the the lingering impact, and I think we're all like experiencing that right now. But it, but in really powerful ways, what what I'm frightened about moving forward, particularly at this moment when when COVID endgame is being so much fatalized right now, and and not just like in in, 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 in like everyday culture, but, but in terms of real policies, scaling back testing, unavailable of getting, getting antigen tests, the removal of mask mandates, those are real policy level decisions um, that are predicated upon a new cultural understanding of this pandemic that is anything but over. And, and I'm afraid that like going forward, we're just going to be dealing with this slow disaster and, 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 and not in having to do exactly what you just said, Alex, of, trying to convince people about the suffering and the impact. And that's the, the thought of that makes my head hurt right now um, in ways that are really difficult to process. Um, but I, but, but I think it's, it's, it's not through numbers. I think, I think it's through stories. Um, I think it's through narrative and I think it's about us talking about our experiences and, 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 and that, that I think has, has real um, and tremendous impact. So I think it's it's about how and and who we amplify right now and going forward to be able to make those stories um, impactful. So wanna um, I want to jump to a different question now, and, and and I want to give some space for you all to talk about your own work um, because it's amazing, incredible, and and important. And and I and I want to um, I want to reflect a little bit uh, upon something that all of you will will have read about and and know about. So in the in the 1980s and in the 1990s with HIV AIDS pandemic, you can look back at the historiography of science and medicine and public health. And it seems like every introduction or every afterward had a little coda about um, how whatever they were working on relates to the current moment then of HIV AIDS. Um, and, and I wonder how you all think about your own work in the time of COVID. Um, how, how is your work maybe in the questions that you've been asking or the methodologies that you've been employing, how has COVID, um, maybe changed some of your questions or the type of things that you're interested in? Um, because, you know, I'm sitting here and, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm pretty far removed from where, from where you all having, you know, now gotten uh, tenure a few years ago, I'm not the field of the history of medicine and public health. You all are. Um, and I've truly believe that. So what y'all are doing is what we really need to be paying attention to. And so how is COVID impacting um, your work? Matt, let's start with you. Yeah, so for me, I, I think one of the, the things that I've been struggling with because of COVID is as we look around and see some of the reactions to uh, the various public health measures, um, the, the anti-mask, the anti-vaccine type sentiment. Uh, I've been struggling with how to grapple with that 
within my own work. Uh, so one of the, the uh, moments that I focus on uh, in my dissertation uh, is on a, a smallpox epidemic uh, that happened uh, in 1920. Uh, so uh, during this uh, epidemic, um, it was pretty important for shifting how the U.S. approached public health measures uh, you know, in the occupation. Uh, they went from basically being concerned about protecting U.S. troops, protecting the so-called American colony uh, in Haiti to realizing, and, and they could do that because, you know, if you're concerned about malaria and stuff like that, you, you can do really local interventions, right? Uh, you can uh, purify water. You can do the things like that that really only focus on, um, you know, your own your own forces, the occupying forces. With smallpox, that wasn't possible. Uh, so the U.S. realized that they had to shift their their public health strategy, uh, and it was a really important moment uh, as a result. Uh, during this moment, though. Uh, there was a major immunization uh, campaign that, that took place. Uh, the Americans claimed that they immunized basically the entire uh, country. But the problem is this immunization campaign was largely a forced immunization campaign at gunpoint uh, in, in some cases. Uh, so in my research, I found all these stories of people resisting the occupation efforts uh, to do this, uh, resisting the occupation efforts to uh, round up uh, smallpox sufferers and put them uh, in essentially a, a concentration camp that, you know, again, guarded uh, with, with our men. People would be shot and, and killed trying to, to escape. Uh, so you can see why this would cause concern, to put it mildly, uh, amongst the, the Haitian population. And there was real pushback uh, against all these things uh, as a result. So when I first came across these stories in the archive, you know, I was kind of thinking, you know, in a way, you've got a complicated but almost heroic uh, narrative of people pushing back against the, the heavy handedness of this military occupation. Great, easy to write. And then with COVID going on, when you're suddenly seeing all these efforts, sometimes violent as well, to push back against the public health measures, against the vaccine mandates uh, and whatnot, start wondering, do I really want to be providing stories that, you know, people anti-vaccine uh, proponents uh, could potentially seize upon and use to justify uh, their position. And I know others who have been working on uh, similar kind of questions have been grappling uh, with that as well. And frankly, I'm, I'm still not really sure um, what, uh, how that's playing out in, in my work. I mean, it, it's, it's an important story from, from this period. I can't just ignore it because it's you know, potentially politically uh, inconvenient uh, now, uh, but those concerns have uh, certainly uh, shaped uh, you know how I'm how I'm thinking uh, about it. Now, I do think uh, you know these kind of stories also help us contextualize you know some of the concerns that Haitians might have about vaccination uh, now as well, which is also. Uh, really uh, important um, that, I mean, we could talk about that uh, too, uh, perhaps, but the, you know, so it, it's not to say that these kind of uh, um, 
stories and examples are only politically inconvenient. They can be very uh, useful for helping make sense of this moment uh, as well, but it becomes complicated, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I felt the same thing in uh, in year one in particular um, of COVID uh, uh, in, in the year following uh, the, the vaccine rollout, I should say, um, in my own teaching. So like I was I remember distinctly one day talking about um, the eight, talking about um, public health in the British Empire and talking about um, the 1897 um, Epidemic Diseases Act, which um, in, which by which the British government employed these very harsh draconian measures to um, that could, you know, military officials could force um, vaccination um, upon um, Indians, could take them out, remove them from their homes, could destroy their homes, could send them to um, plague camps. And, and, and like talking about agency of, of indigenous Indians and students were just like, wow, that's really interesting. Don't you think if you wrote an article, an op-ed about that, the political right in America would be like, that's why we don't need vaccine mandates. Um, and, and I'm like, yeah, probably not the right moment to write something about that. But I think like what 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 so many of us find um, is like our teaching and our research in the history of medicine, it it it, it has always been able to be been able to be a wedge um, politically and culturally. And now I think we're seeing like in this moment, the stakes are even higher Um Kristen, maybe let's bring in you in here because I know your work on South Africa um, um, all, all of a sudden during the pandemic has gotten maybe potentially more politicized or has the, yeah, I think that has the potential to be more politicized. How have you been navigating that? So um, actually any of the political, my my political engagement with South Africa has been it's been through the pandemic, but it's been th through other avenues where people have been effect affected by especially lockdowns and economic issues um, that come along with that in a society where wealth disparity is already probably one of the largest in the world. Um, so I haven't, so I, so in terms of that work, I think I've done, and that's been more public facing than in my own work. Um, I think water is something that is you know, pretty universally, everyone is kind of on board with the idea of everyone needs clean water. Um, it just depends on, you know, um, more infrastructural issues and also funding issues. Um, and so that's not necessarily a very contested thing yet. But when we're talking about, if we're talking about like my engagement with politicization during COVID, um, so in, um, which I guess actually kind of addresses like, you know, uh, other ways of thinking about pandemics and the way that they affect our lives. And that it's not always just going to be about people getting sick and then dying or ending up in hospitals. It's actually also about like all the other ramifications that these pandemics have for us. Um, so in the middle of July, um, in the middle of level four lockdown, um, there was a spate of, um, I would call them protests. Um, but I think a lot of people call them riots um, that broke out in three major cities in SA. Uh, so Joburg, Peter Maritzburg, and where I was at in Durban. Um, all the grocery stores were, all the major grocery, grocery stores and shopping malls were looted. Um, major factories were set on fire. And a lot of that was in response to, um, actually most of it was in response to the um, renewed level four lockdown that the country was put under, which would then, um, create even more economic disparities and you know so not only was covid 
killing off especially many people in poorer populations, especially in townships and informal settlements, but also the dire economic situation where you have stoppages in tourism and you have stoppages in um, any kind of wealth coming into the country um, was, or even circulating within the country, you know, like when you think about the alcohol bans that were put into place and how many people suffered because of that. Um, You know, so I was able to actually work with a friend in Durban to write a few op-eds, just kind of trying to contextualize everything that was going on. Not only you know the pandemic but also in wider South African politics and culture itself because you know I think this made me kind of step back for a minute and think about you know when we're thinking about histories of disease you know how do we kind of you know not just I guess yeah like decenter disease a little bit and think about you know all of the other issues that kind of you know the other the ripple effects basically that come from that um and which I think is taking a much broader lens of what history of disease and public health looks like. Um, because then that then begs the question, again, that could be used by far-right groups and people like anti-vaxxers to say, well, we don't, you know, if we're going to put in these kinds of sanctions, if we're going to put in these kinds of lockdowns, like, is that really the best way for us to go? You know, and I think this can, especially in the U.S., a lot of, when I think about this, I also think a lot about, you know, children that are in schools and you know how parents really needed you know they needed the kids to go back to schools for their own jobs their sanity but also they want to make sure that their kids are protected um and especially from covid so it's just i think again it just exposes even more deeply the kinds of um issues that are inherent in kind of trying to engage the broader um again, ripples that are coming out of the pandemic and doing it in a way that is nuanced and complex and is not going to incite or inflame any kind of political angst, especially in a country like SA. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I think um, a lot of historians, I know myself included, historians of medicine um, and public health have looked into, you know, this 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 field of disaster studies with which to reinterpret um, some of our, our questions and, um, and also, you know, in some ways going back to like, what is a very old approach, um, which a lot of people have used in our field, but, of you know, social medicine and thinking a lot more broadly about broad, um, scale impacts. Alex, how, how have this been impacting your work and questions? I think one thing that has been sort of a, a striking parallel. Uh, I, I'm, the chapter I'm writing right now is about basically the, the Consumer Product Safety Commission and the stuff leading up to it. Um, and one thing that sort of cur- occurs again and again in all the congressional debates around whether or not to have a regulatory agency and then what the contours of that agency might look like um, tend to sort of polarize around basically something that's been happening a lot in the pandemic, which is sort of a freedom discourse versus a rights discourse, right? Yeah. Um, is, the, is the way that we need to be thinking about any policy, social policy, it doesn't need to just be public health, right? But any social policy is the goal to, to guarantee that everyone have, has some degree of choice in what they do in the world? Uh, or is it that, you know, basically we have to have some something more like a positive rights discourse where you have a right to something uh, as opposed to a freedom from something? Um, and in the case of, of, of accident prevention, in the case of consumer product safety specifically, the way this sort of gets articulated is like, well, on the one hand, there's sort of free enterprise, right? Uh, which both means the right of corporations to sell uh, as they will uh, and retailers to sell as they will, right? But also a question of consumers having the ability to choose whatever good they want to buy, right? 
Um, and this idea of an autonomous consumer uh, who's able to basically make informed choices, uh, has the resources to make those choices and to follow through on them effectively, um, gets sort of counterposed with uh, there's sort of a, another contemporary discourse on quote unquote a, a potential right to safety, right? What is the role of the state or of, of society, whether that's at the local level or the national level, to basically step in and make sure that people are safe? If we value safety as a thing in the world, right? Much like we could ask about COVID, do we value health as a thing in the world? What kinds of actions should, whether it's like the federal bureaucracy or just like a group of people, what action should you be allowed or able or even sort of obligated to take? Um, I think that that, that polarity uh, has been coming up a lot in terms of things like vaccine mandates and uh, in terms of things like mask mandates um, and even sort of like the right of businesses to stay open. Uh, and you know, uh, it, it just strikes me that like the the other thing I think I would say is that like at at that moment, the historical moment in the late '60s, early '70s, when the CPSC is being formed, there's this, there's a brief window where it looks like maybe there's going to be substantial political mobilization around this idea of a right to safety, right? Where like both uh, professional actors and government actors and some segments of the general public are going to sort of rally together to sort of like work as a community and work as a nation. Uh, on this project of safety, right? Um, and then pretty quickly, you get the early 70s and all that disintegrates, right? Um, and I think for some of us at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a similar window where it looked like maybe like after like a, a bunch of dithering, we were maybe gonna get our act together collectively and acknowledge our sort of mutual obligations to each other as a society. Um, and then pretty quickly, you know, uh, come like June of the of the same year, right? Uh, suddenly that like what little communal ethos there was disintegrated and it became again everybody for themselves whether that's you know corporate actors or individuals or what have you and it became again sort of this resurgence of freedom uh, counterposed to like society uh, and so that's something that has been uh, sort of upsetting me as I've been writing this chapter because uh, it's not great to see it play out again in real time as someone who's now facing the ramifications of that. Yeah. You know, the other thing, just to real quick, and then we'll let uh, Maddie get the last word in here, um, is, you know, as someone who has studied major public health infrastructure change in the late 19th and early 20th century in terms of food, like safeguarding food supplies and food pathways and water supplies and, and, and sewage infrastructure, it, it strikes me that like one of the big conversations that we is going to be unavoidable in terms of public health structural change is air quality. And that seems like such a giant elephant in the room um, that is going to be replaying a lot of the same debates that um, were late 19th, early 20th century um, debates. So, um, so your work is going to become even more important. I'm sorry to tell you, my friend, uh, Maddie, what about you? Yeah. Um, I think my, my topics, but also really my methodological approaches um, have changed a lot. Um, I've been thinking about what it means to live in a moment um, that if I was born like 50 or maybe 100 years from now, I would be really interested in writing about. Um, and that's been a really helpful exercise, I think, for me, um, because, you know, I asked myself like, well, what would I want future historians to know and write about um, with COVID? And I think my answers kind of like actually surprised, like I surprised myself with it um, because 
I think I would really want them to focus on individual stories. Um, I think I would want them to try to grapple with and understand the complexity of trying to write um, so many different lived experiences in the midst of what is supposed to be this like shared global crisis that we're all living through. Um, so yeah, I think the level of the story and um, an individual has become like so much of a bigger focus for my work. Um, and then maybe like topically, I guess in the early days of like total or stricter lockdowns, um, I started to think a lot about how people were shifting all of these different aspects of their lives, like their work, um, exercising and, and socializing and, um, you know, all of these things that they were used to doing in various locales into this one space, which is their home. Um, and, you know, I felt like I was getting inundated with so many like online social media type images or just like opinions or guidelines on how to be well and like how to achieve wellness. Um, so like, you know, ads for like virtual counseling and, and free fitness videos and like the Peloton um, was like really big like two years ago. Um, just like ways to create wellness within your home. Um, and it just, I think it just really alerted me to maybe something that was already like brewing inside of me um, that I didn't know, um, which was just like my deep fascination with how um, people's environments and, uh, you know, the cultures that surround them um, become internalized and reflected in defining like what generational health and wellness is supposed to look like. Um, so I'm wondering like how that's changing in our current moment with COVID um, and kind of the environments that we're living in now that we're kind of forced into. Um, but then that's definitely kind of shaped how I now look at the past, um, you know, and, and how I want to look at, um, you know, how health and wellness is defined in medical and popular culture, um, like in the 19th century physical culture movement. So, um, yeah, and see how that affects people's senses of, of social and civic belonging too. Wow. That's, that sounds amazing. Just do that. And, um, you'll, you, you'll change the field. Um, I, I can't thank you all so much for, for taking time and space to talk through this. I know it's, um, you know, the, the last thing I'll say is like, it's labor to even come on a program like this and just talk through this. And, and I want to recognize that because you speaking out is speaking out for thousands of other graduate students right now who um, who are experiencing this too and and these 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 are these are the stories that we need to talk about and we need to record and we need to think through and we need to process but we also need to address them in real ways like Alex was saying earlier so um, thank you so much it's real labor it's labor that I that I can't um, that I, I appreciate and I know the listeners of COVID calls do and um, there's a lot of a lot of people um, excited about this call and it um, exceeded expectations today, I can safely say. So um, y'all y'all stay safe and take care. Um, you can join COVID calls next week um, at our regular regular time um, with Scott Knowles. And uh, I'm sure to be back at some time soon, uh, hopefully with some guests just like this um, here today. Alex Perry, Kristen Bregg-Ortiz, Matt Davidson, and Madeline Weir, please follow them. Please follow their work uh, and uh, take care, y'all.